kingdom. Today is, is not about church. It's not about us. It's all about you. Uh, we, we worship you. We, we, we unashamedly say we love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for your grace poured out 2,000 years ago that is active in my life today. Your word tells us that we can boldly enter into the throne of grace. Lord, there's a whole bunch of places we can't boldly enter into. We'll get arrested, but we can boldly into your throne and receive grace and mercy at the time of need. And so we celebrate you today and every day. Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, be, uh, be the leader and the Lord of our life. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Give someone a high five and have a seat, please. <laughs> and so, uh, so as we were worshiping first service, I couldn't help but notice the cross here with the flowers on it. And uh, what a contrast. It, it caught my eye. Uh, and, and it's a picture uh, that has a story behind it. But here's the point that I wanted to make with you this morning to start this Resurrection Day Easter celebration is that, you know, the cross is brutal. It's, it's ugly. It's um, uh, bloody. It's, uh, the Roman government made crucifixion a, a statement. This is what happens to you when you cross us. I never got the opportunity to have any discussions with my father after his first, door of, his first tour of duty in Vietnam. But I know that it changed him. And I know that he saw things that he couldn't even talk about. And he never did talk about it. He didn't, he, he didn't last much longer after his second tours, maybe a year, and he was gone. But I know that he saw some atrocious things. And, and that's the cross. There's nothing clean or humane. It is barbaric. It is, it is horrific. Uh, the Romans would line the pathway into Jerusalem with crucified bodies. And sometimes they would put seats on the back of them so that people could breathe because most people, a lot of people who were crucified died of asphyxiation. They were unable to breathe because they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe. Their diaphragm collapsed and they therefore uh, uh, suffocated. So they would put seats underneath them to, to continue the agony and some people would be on the cross for days. And so as I, as I see this, this cross, I, I, I'm, I'm looking from the back side, and, it's, it's, and I just the picture that I saw, it's rugged, it's nasty, it's brutal, it's, it's, it's ugly. And then on the front side are all these flowers and roses, and it's, and it's beautiful, and it's pretty. And I thought... You know, that's, that's the beauty of today is on the backside of the cross. It's everything that is ugly and grotesque about my sin and, and my life and, and how fall I short to meet with God. But on the front side, it's beauty and it's, it's amazing and it's pretty. And, and the cross was all of those ugly things. Uh, uh, but today we celebrate the beauty and the majesty and the greatness of how God takes, takes, uh, makes uh, uh, a beauty out of ashes, how he takes, you know, horrific things and he makes them amazing and beautiful. 
And we celebrate that today. Can you say amen to that? Now, here's the story. The story is I got the privilege to play a small part in a funeral yesterday for a woman who was 94 years old when she passed away. And, and this, her, her daughter wanted to give this to us as a gift. And, and this woman uh, was responsible for hundreds, thousands of people coming to know the Lord. At 74 years old, when people are shutting it down and thinking of quitting, she said, she called the chaplain at High Desert Prison and said, I need to come minister to these prisoners. And let me tell you what, she led, I'm going to say, hundreds of them to Christ. And, um, uh, and, and her influence spread. Uh, yesterday, there, were, there was a man there who was an inmate who's now a pastor, and he owed it all to her. And, uh, and so they gifted it to us. And so this is like, this is just so perfect to think that today, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, uh, Maria, uh, who, whose funeral was yesterday, has gone on to be with her Lord and Savior Jesus, and she's in His presence. And and uh, so I just that's the cross. That's the that's the, the. There's nothing beautiful about the cross. Nothing at all. We can't even imagine how brutal it is. But then Jesus takes something so ugly, and He makes it. Life and beauty and salvation. And, and that's what we celebrate today. Our theme this morning is the God of the living. The God of the living. Using general relativity, Stephen Hawking contributed more to the understanding of black holes and the naturalistic Big Bang theory or model than any other person. He had his own belief about the afterlife. He died last year, just about this time. And he said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. We are each free to believe what we want. And it is my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, I am extremely grateful. He would go on to talk about his belief about philosophy in general, and he also declared that philosophy was dead. And he based that belief on what he believed, the fact that philosophers had not kept up with the modern developments of science and that consequently scientists have become, quote, in his words, bearers, the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. That was written out of an article in Answers in Genesis website. Is that it? Is that the end result? There's no God and there's no heaven Therefore, there's no purpose. And if there's no God, how do you have meaning? And if there's no God, how do you determine what truth is? How do you define what's right or what's wrong? Seems to me like people just make it up as they go or someone else tells us what's truth and what's not. It's interesting to note that his first wife of 25 years talked about after he was diagnosed with ALS, the change that began to happen in, that began to happen in him the change that happened in their relationship, married 25 years, she said the man changed. And she also 
ironically attributed her ability to get through the difficult times that she had with him and even the divorce with him due to her faith in God. So the very thing that he says doesn't exist was the thing that she said got her through. I want to talk to you this morning about a burning bush. Everybody say a burning bush. We're in Exodus chapter 3. I'll read you the context and we'll get to the, to the word. It says this. It says, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his brother-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side. Everybody say, west side. West side. Say it like you mean it. Say, west side. West side. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I can't help it. I can't help it. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that, uh, that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, um, You can always tell when I lost my place, right? Moses, Moses. Ah, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So a little bit of the backdrop is that Moses spends 40 years of his life in Egypt raised up to be a prince. He's going to be a prince in Egypt. And then because of some circumstances that happen, namely a murder, uh, he finds himself on the run. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years on the backside of the desert. How many of you would agree 40 years in the wilderness is a long time to be on the west side of the desert? I mean, consider like if you had to spend spent 40 years in Baker, California. I mean, that's, that would be like, oh, Lord, Lord. I, I, mean, no, I mean, no disrespect to anybody here from Baker, none at all. I, I said that one time, and there was a woman from Baker. She was not happy with me. I told her, listen, my, I, I, not, I, I not, didn't mean it personal. You're the only one I've ever met from Baker outside of the mad Greek, so I'm so sorry to offend you. <laughs> 40 years. In that 40 years, he's tending sheep. And in that tending of sheep, God's preparing him. He has no clue. Now, we don't know that he's searching for God. We don't know that he's praying to God. He's just busy doing what God has called him to do. He's being a kingdom man. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God visits him with this amazing picture, this amazing illustration. Um, uh, It's like God interrupts his life and and he sees this incredible bush that's burning. Uh, Now that would get your attention. You're out tending sheep and you go, hey, that, okay, that bush is burning. That would be strange. And then, and then he, like a couple minutes later, he looks again and he says, okay, it's still burning. All right. And it's not burning up. So he turns and, and he looks at it. And I believe that there was a picture that God was going to say. And as Paulette says, I'm going to use my sanctified imagination. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and say that I believe it was a picture of a nation. Oh, there she is right there. Yeah, a, a picture of a nation. 
A picture of a nation that, that, would be, that would be brutalized but would not be destroyed. And I think it goes beyond that as well. But isn't it interesting that God calls Moses to go and deliver Israel from bondage and, and during their affliction and their hardship that, that he, he was going to rescue them. Um, Israel, if you haven't noticed, is, is, uh, uh, suffered some amazing, the nation, the people, some amazing atrocities. I heard one man say, if you don't believe in God, all you have to do is look at Israel and you have to believe that God exists because there's no other explanation for that nation existing. I mean, you talk about going, you talk about Pharaoh who told the midwives, kill all the boys. And of course they didn't do it. And, Haman, who, ex- who had a plan to exterminate all of them, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Herod, Titus in 70 AD, who destroyed Jerusalem, modern times, Hitler, Stalin. The day that Israel became a nation, there were five Arab nations that all pointed their guns to them and tried to annihilate them. Somehow, miraculously, they survived. Uh, there are enemies within them. There's radical Islam. There are those political groups in their charters that say they want to wipe out Israel. And yet, in spite of all the affliction and all of the stuff that they've endured, they continue to exist. So I believe that that burning bush was a picture of something that was going through affliction, but that God knew of and God was going to rescue from. Notice that the angel of the Lord is in the midst of the fire, and then he calls Moses by name. Okay, I want you to remember that, those two points. And then he says this. He says, I'm the God of your father. Now, when, when God speaks to Moses and he wants to get his attention and identify himself, he says, Moses, Moses. And he turns. That's very personal because he calls him by his name. And then he points back to something. And he says, Moses, I'm, I'm, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Interesting. The God of Abraham? I mean, that goes back. I mean, 400 years of bondage, even prior to that, that goes back a long time. But he's referencing something and he's referencing men that aren't even alive anymore. And there's a reason for that. He's reminding Moses that, Moses, I'm a covenant-keeping God. I know that my people have been in bondage for 400 years, but I'm going to reference a time even before that, and I'm going to say I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm still the God of my people, and I keep my promises, and I have not forgotten them in their bondage. That's important to realize. Abraham was promised that a great nation would come from him. A great nation would come from him. That there would be personal blessings. That his name was going to be great. And that through him, through his lineage, when he had no children and his wife was unable to have children, through his lineage, all nations on earth would be blessed. And God would bless those who bless Abraham and Israel and he would curse those who curse Israel. That's a covenant that God made with them, and I believe that covenant is still in existence. But he's referencing a point going back to remind Moses that he hasn't forgotten his people. All right, keep that in mind, and let's fast forward to the New Testament. We're in the book of Matthew chapter 22, and let me introduce you to the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the liberal theologians of the day. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, that's it. And they actually believed in the first five books of the Bible as it pertained to them. 
In other words, what was convenient for them. Because when you start taking away parts of the Bible, when you say, well, that's not really what Jesus meant. Or we say, oh, well, that, there's really no historical evidence of that. Oh, so we, so they had whittled it down the first five books. And when you start to do that, you start to make a religion that is convenient for you, not according to the word of God. You cannot take away from the word of God. They did. First five books, that's it. Now, Barclay says this of the Sadducees. He says that they were not many in number, wealthy, aristocratic, and the governing class. Now, they ask Jesus a question. And when you read the Bible and someone asks Jesus a question, you always want to ask yourself, why did they ask that question? And here's the beauty of Jesus. He knew why they were asking him the question, right? I mean, like, because he knows the heart. He knows the secret things. By the way, when we ask Jesus questions, he knows the motive behind it. Does that scare you a little bit? Just a little bit. Oh, Lord, why? And he, uh, you want me to tell you why? No, I don't really want to know. Right? So they ask him a question about, about life after death because they don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in, and they believe in God who they cannot see, but they don't believe in angels and they believe there's no afterlife. They believe you die and that's it. And I've had people say that to me. I say, what happens to you when you die? You cease to exist. I go, are you sure? Yes. And what's that, what's that based on? Well, it's just what I think it is. Well, what if you're wrong? Well, I'm not prepared for that. <laughs> hmm, never thought of it that way. Okay. So now here's a question that they have for him. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, this is the, this is the process that God instituted because lineage heritage, and land really mattered. And so if you're married and you die and you have no children, it was your brother's responsibility to bring your wife into his house and father children through her. I know we hear that and we go, what? Listen, it was heritage, keeping the name, keeping land, all of that really mattered. That's the process that God instituted, okay? Now, so the Sadducees come to him and they ask him a nonsensical question. You know what that is. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you a nonsensical question. Like they, they think because they can string together words that you should be able to come up with an answer. Like, well, if your God's so big, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? It's like, wait, that's illogical, right? And I heard one person say, well, he can't, but he reserves the right to. What? Okay. He's like, well, can God make a married bachelor? Okay, that's nonsense. No, it doesn't. No, just because you ask a question doesn't mean that I demand that you demand an answer when there isn't one, Okay. So that's what they do to Jesus. They're setting him up because they want validation that there's no afterlife. And so using the Bible out of Deuteronomy 25, which they probably had the first five books of the Bible memorized. This is how insane these people were. Okay? I mean, that's insane. I mean, really. Like, come on, man. Really? Do you not ever watch sports or anything? Now, I'm all for memorizing the Bible. But why would you memorize it if you don't want to follow it? Like Mark Twain once said, it's not the things that I don't understand about the Bible that bother me. It's the things that I do understand. <laughs> yeah? 
Anyway, here's what they say. They come to him, they believe there's no resurrection, and they begin questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us a law that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, his brother is to marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers. Okay, right? You see where this is going? Okay, so what if there's seven brothers? It's like, really? Let's extend it out to the, the scenario that doesn't even exist and never will. There were seven brothers. The first one took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second brother married her, died, leaving no children. The third brother, likewise. So when all seven, uh, so all seven married her and died and left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. So here's the question, okay? I say all of this to say this. In verse 23, they say, In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And the Sadducees went, Oh, we got him. Oh, we got him. There's no answer for that. We got him. For all seven brothers were married to her. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not why you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures that teach the resurrection nor the power of God who was able to raise the dead. For when they rise from from the dead, they do not marry nor are they given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the raising of the dead, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he says, you are greatly mistaken and you are deceiving yourselves. All right, here's the answer. Jesus says, you are wrong on Every level. And the Sadducees went, what? Because they thought they had a corner on the market when it came to biblical knowledge. How dare he say that? You're wrong. Now, here's the thing about that. Just because someone says they know the Bible or because someone quotes the Bible or someone seems to have great knowledge of the Bible doesn't mean that they are applying it correctly. And that also doesn't mean that they're living a holy life either. These men are proof of that. They, Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures because the scriptures teach of the resurrection. The scriptures teach of the other side of the cross. And Jesus is going to give some examples of that. I'm going to give you some more. Job chapter 19 in the Old Testament. Job says this, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives And he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. The resurrection. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. In the book of Daniel, it says this, Daniel chapter 2, Many of them that sleep from the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Jesus says, you don't know the Bible. This is what it says. And then he says, you don't know the power of God because it is the power of God that is able to take things that are dead and bring them to life. 
It is the power of God that will bring people to life and raise the dead. Jesus said, when they rise from the dead. So Jesus said that. Those were his words. The implication of that is serious because this is what he, these are not words that are made up. This is not what the apostles hoped he said. Jesus said this. What do you believe about life after death? What's that based on? Today, I'm telling you and sharing with you what Jesus said. He says, when they rise from the dead, not if. And not only did Jesus rise from the dead as the first fruits or as an example of that, but the Bible tells us this thing that I've always been incredibly intrigued by. When Jesus rose from the dead, it says in Matthew chapter 7, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints saints which slept, that is, were dead, arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now we read that and we go, okay, no, listen. There are select, there was a select group of people chosen by the sovereignty of God that when Jesus rose from the dead, so did they. And they came up out of their graves and they walked into Jerusalem like, what's up? Wait a minute, hold on. We buried you a month ago, I know. What happened? You know what, man, I was just like, I was out and did, did I heard my name. I just woke up and here I am. Give me something to eat. I'm like, what? I mean, how do you, how do you, right? Can a brother get a hamburger or something, right? I've been asleep for a month and a half. I'm hungry. Jesus said when they rise and as an example of that, there's going to be a select few that are going to rise up and walk into Jerusalem as evidence that the the dead rise from the dead. It's amazing to think about, right? Jesus says this about the afterlife. We don't know a whole lot about it because there's a lot that's left for us to ponder and to wish for. He says life is different after the resurrection in heaven. For example, he says marriage doesn't continue. He says that. Now... Now, do not look left or right. Fix your eyes on Jesus right now. Last service, it was all kind of amening and hallelujah. And I said, hold on, wait a minute now. Y'all need, (laughs) we need to start that emotionally healthy relationships next week. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. I know. I know. So I... It was the same thing last time. Y'all are a little bit more rambunctious than last service. Last service was like, they were a little more holy. They were like, mm, thank you, Jesus. Jesus. That was more subdued. Y'all just let it out, man. Like, woo! Hallelujah! I digress. <laughs> just look straight ahead. Don't look left or right. Elbow in. Another. I don't want to deal with you for eternity, you know. <laughs> and he says, he says, we're like angels. I don't know what that means. I, 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 that's 
a lot to look forward to. Like Jesus would like show up someplace and then he'd be gone. So like, you know, space travel, I don't know. I'll say, what's up? Boom, gone. Hey, hey, where do you, where do you go? I don't know. We'll be like angels. Now, here's the point. Verse 26. But concerning the raising of the dead, he points them back to Exodus, which they are familiar with. God always starts with where you, what you're familiar with. Have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage of the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, here's the point. Here's Easter celebration. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he says, you're greatly mistaken and you're deceiving yourselves. See, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not live on in the resurrection, then God would have had to say that he was the God of Abraham. Like when they were alive, he goes, no, I am the God of Abraham because I'm still their God and they're still living. Spurgeon said the living God is the God of living men and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive and identified as the same persons who lived on earth. So here's the point. So what? I am so glad you asked that question. What's the point? So what? How does that apply to me today? Listen, because he's the God of the living. The next part of Exodus answers that question. Now remember, Israel has been enslaved by harsh taskmasters in Egypt for 400 years. But God's about to do something. This is what it says. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of the suffering and the desolation of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, their oppressors, for I know their pain and suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand or the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a land that is good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty." So what? Because he is the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I see the affliction and the suffering of my people. Have you ever felt like nobody knows what you're going through or nobody sees what's really happening or no one really understands? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt like there's nobody that I can, that can, that I can grab a hold of? Uh, maybe a time of hardship or difficulty, which no matter how hard or how strong or how intelligent or how you name it you are, we all go through seasons of that. And there are times where we need something and maybe there's a somebody that can't give it to us. So where do we go to get it? God says, I, I, I know what my people have gone through. Uh, I, I see what's going. I've seen the affliction uh, of, of, my, of my people. And that's what the Lord says. I'm the God who sees and I've seen the affliction of my people. It makes me say this, because he sees, he can see me through. Because he sees, he can see me through. Secondly, he says, I, I hear the cries of my people. King David, 
arguably one of the greatest military leaders of all time because of God's hand upon him, was in a season of life when the Philistines were, were, were bearing down on him and his life was in danger. That happened a lot in his life. But this is what he says about the cries of his, uh, 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 his cries to God. Psalm 56, he says, They are always twisting what I say, They spend their lives plotting to harm me. They come together to spy on me, watching my every step, eager to kill me. Don't let them get away with their wickedness. In your anger, O God, bring them down. And then he says this, you keep track of my sorrows. Life is a series of highs and lows, isn't it? And it's about managing those highs and those lows and and trying to get through the seasons of life. David said, David said, "Um, you, you keep track of my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. The anguish, the hardship, the cries of his people. Uh, it, 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 God says, I've, I've, I've captured every one of your tears. Every one. You thought nobody knew or nobody saw. And I'm telling you, I can tell you why, when, and where for every tear that you've dropped. That's how much he hears us. And then he says this, this may be the best part. I've, I've seen the affliction and the suffering of my people. I've heard their cries, but that's not just seeing and hearing. He's done the next thing. He says, and I've come down to rescue them. I've come down to rescue them. Rescue from our enemies. Rescue from ourselves. How many of you guys need to be rescued from yourself? It's like, you know what, God? I was thinking the other day, where would I be? if I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And I started to think a little bit, and I was like, no, I'm done. I don't want to, no, I don't even know. I don't even know, right? Rescued us from Satan, rescued us from death, rescued us from the hell and from the grave. Many may have thought, God is not with us, and God says, I am. Moses says, who do you want me to tell this people that I got to have a name, God, because we've been in bondage for 400 years and every God has a name. What's your name? He goes, you know what? Just tell them I am. That doesn't have a timeline, God. Exactly. I always was. I am and I always will be. Tell them that I am. And you know what? He's reminding the people that he's a covenant-keeping God. That you remind my people that in spite of all their affliction, that my covenant is still for them. I've seen their affliction. I've heard their cries and I've come down and I'm about to deliver them because I'm going to keep my promise and I'm a covenant keeping God. I'm a covenant keeping God. So Philippians 1.6 says this, Paul, the apostle speaking on lockdown, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive or not. Uh, he, he's writing to them saying, I might see you, I might not. I really want to kind of stick around and be, and be a blessing, but I want to go be with the Lord too. So I really don't know. 
This was a guy who couldn't wait to go be with Jesus. And he says this, I am convinced and confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, that is the time of his return, because he's a covenant-keeping God. I had a conversation with someone yesterday, and I said, tell me, tell me, what do you, do you, are, are you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you, you, oh, yes, no, I believe. Oh, great, uh, great. Uh, so, so let me ask you this next question. That's great that you believe. Do you go to church? Well, kind of, sort of. I said, okay, no problem. We'll get, we'll get to that later. So, but, but, but when you died, here's a million-dollar question. If you died tonight, are you absolutely sure you'd go to heaven? They went, no, no, no. I already know on my deathbed there's a few things I'm going to be apologizing for. And I tried to explain to her the disconnect between the two. You believe. You have faith. You, be- you believe Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't know if you're going to heaven or not? There's a problem with that. And I believe there's multitudes of people who would say, oh, I believe, but I don't No. And that's because they're living on this side of the cross, the backside. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm I'm a sinner. No way could God accept me. And they don't know. On the flip side of that is the beauty and and the salvation and the unity and the oneness that he has died so that we could have. And I said, "Let's, let's, let's, let's handle that right now. Let's pray. Understand your sins are forgiven. Understand that he loves you and he has a a plan for your life. God would say to you today, he would say to us today, I am your God and I don't change. I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and I'm your God too. And I'm a covenant-keeping God. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cries. And God says, I've come down. But not only that, I have died for you and I've risen from the grave so that we could be united together. Would you come on up, Ashley, please, as I kind of close my part? Moses turned to see the, the bush that was burning. He turned to see it. The Lord didn't call out Moses, Moses, until he turned to see. There are some here this morning who have not turned to see. And God is waiting for you to turn to him. He's waiting for you to respond to him. God told Moses, remove your sandals because his ground is holy ground. That was humility. It would take a lot for, for Moses to humble himself, but he believed that where he was was the holy ground. It takes a lot for us to humble ourselves. So you can't, you can't come to God on your terms. You have to humble yourself and come to him on his terms. Oh, God, if you do this, I'll come to you. And God's like, that's not how I operate. This is how it works. So my question to you is, 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 is have you heard his call? Have you turned to him? Have you responded to him? Or are you like those who would say, well, I sort of believe, but I don't know anything beyond that. 
Or what do you believe happens? What do you believe happens when you breathe your last breath? What's that based on? What if you're wrong? I suggest to you that this explanation is the absolute best I've ever heard of. And I'm willing to stake my eternity on the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no place else to go. There are some here in this place that have been running from God. You've been running full speed. And I want you to know, when you get tired of running, God will meet you there. And I want you to know, not only will he meet you there, he's running right alongside you. And I want you to know he's running behind you too. Would you surrender your heart today? Would you come to the other side of the cross? Would you let go of fear and pride? Or maybe a hurt that happened in your life through somebody who was supposed to be a spiritual person who let you down? I don't know. Would you let that go today? I want you to ponder that. We have a song that we're going to sing that we know will bless you, and then we'll close out in prayer.